0: Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is God's word. Let me pray and then we'll jump in and take a look at it, okay? Father, I ask that you would, uh, in these next few moments, uh, attend to your word by your spirit and open up our eyes and unclog our ears so that we would be able to see what is true and what is good and what is right. And so we ask for your help. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are a lot of forms of imitation out there. For for example, the band Owl City, clearly imitating the Postal Service, right? And doing a bad job of it, in my opinion. (laughs) Sorry, Owl City fans. Um, remember when, Dw- or, or when Jim on The Office dressed up as Dwight and uh, kind of rocked the mustard-colored shirt and the hair and the glasses? Remember that? Bears, Beats, Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> or um, please tell me y'all know the Star Wars kid who was like swinging that golf club and around in his, in his uh, garage per- trying to imitate being a Jedi. <laughs> all, all of these stories of imitation made me think of a, a story from my own Life. Uh, many of y'all may not know who this is, but Pete Maravich was a famous basketball player in the 70s and the 80s, and he came out with this basketball tutorial video that I had VHS. And this dude, if you can just picture, uh, short dude, white moppy haircut, rocking the stash, and um, wearing those shorts that they wore in the NBA back in the day where, like, showing as much thigh as you legally like, could, could get away with. And he had this tutorial video where he was showing you how to shoot and ball handling drills, and I watched this thing all the time. So when I was 12 years old, I said, you know what, I've been playing basketball for about a year now. It's time for me to come out with my own video. So what I did was I, um, I went into the back our backyard where, we, where our driveway was and the basketball goal that was attached above our garage and I set up our camera on the tripod and I'm you know, instructing you how to shoot baskets and uh, the thing is but I'm constantly running out of the frame because I'm like throwing the ball against the rim and I have to go chase them. So I like, can't make anything and I'm looking, at the, I'm looking at the camera I'm like okay kids here's how you do it and I'm trying to show you how to dribble in my high pitched prepubescent voice and um, <laughs> If I could find this video, we would, we would watch it, and uh, y'all would laugh, and I would cry in shame, and it'd be awful, but um, here's why I'm talking about this. Not every form of imitation is terrible, I mean, because this passage looks you directly in the face and says, imitate God. It's right there in verse 1. So what I want to do is, for the rest of our time, just look at this from two different angles. I want to look at the aspects of imitating God, and then I want to look at the ability of how you, of how you get the ability to imitate God. So the aspects and the ability, or in other words, what this thing looks like and how you get the power to actually do it. Okay? So here's the, here's the first thing. We're going to look at the aspects of imitating God. And just to set up your expectations, we're going to kind of camp here for, for most of our time. And then at the end, we'll kind of tack on how you get the ability. So just to set your expectations, we'll be here for most of our time. Because there are three aspects that Paul lays out as far as how we are to imitate God. And it all has to do, and it revolves around that word walk. And I tried to structure your handout. You see in verse 2, walk in love. In verse 8, second paragraph, walk as children of light. And then in verse 15, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So those are the three aspects, and we're going to look at these one at a time. Walking in love, walking in light, and walking in wisdom. Make sense? Okay. So here's the first one. Walk in love. I'll read it again, verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Right from the outset, we are commanded to walk in love, to to embody a lifestyle of love in the same way that Jesus loved us, meaning that we are to have a self-sacrificial love for other people. But very quickly, I'm sure you noticed... Paul moves away from self-sacrifice to begin discussing self-indulgence. He's talking about love, and then he starts talking about love's perversion. So here it is in verse 3. But sexual immorality or all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. (coughs) Sexual immorality. It's a fun word. In the Greek, it is porneia, which is where we obviously get the word pornography from. But what does that word mean? Sexual immorality. You don't really hear that phrase getting kind of kicked around all, these, you know, all that much these days, do you? And it's like, hey, did um, you hear about Elliot? He's really struggling with sexual immorality. <laughs> it's like, no, we don't even. What does that mean? Here's what that word means it means any sexual activity that takes place outside of God's ordained context for it, which is marriage. That's what that word means. Any sexual activity that takes place outside of God's ordained context for it, which is marriage. Now, I know some of you are going, okay, here we go again. Christians and their prudish views of sex. This is so Victorian and embarrassing that these people actually believe this. I mean, no sex outside of marriage? We don't live in the 50s anymore, right? Here's what I want you to see. The Bible's view of sex is not just God creating some rigid, arbitrary rule to ruin your sex life and make sure that you don't have any fun. The claim of the Bible is that sex is a good thing created by God. You have to to see that. Sex is a good thing created by God. And both of those elements are absolutely important. So first, sex is a good thing. It is created good. The Bible does not view sex as dirty, but actually as glorious and beautiful. We have in our Bible the book Song of Solomon. (laughs) (laughs) If you you have read this, it is a story about uh, a young married couple and their love for each other and their graphic sex life together. And it's all framed as beautiful and awesome and great. The Bible does not think sex is bad. It views it as good. And for some, I have an idea of what probably what some of y'all will be doing your quiet times in tomorrow. <laughs> but sex is first a good thing, but secondly, it is created by God. And this is important because God is the inventor of you. He, he designed you and he designed sex, and therefore he knows how for this thing to function and operate mm-hmm. properly. If you think about it like this, Uh, If if you really want your car to run in the way that it was designed to run, the designers will tell you to only put gasoline in it. And if you go, only gasoline? That's so restricting. That is totally restricting my freedom. There's a million other options of things I can put in it. So I'm going to put in pancake syrup instead. (laughs) You know, if you did that, it would destroy your car, would, the thing would break and the thing would bust and and it would not work. The designers are not putting restrictions on your fun. They are saying if you really want this thing to flourish and operate in the way that it was designed to, this is the format for how you do it. So sex outside of marriage is not just is not just breaking some rule, it is breaking yourself. It is breaking your design. It's like pouring pancake syrup in the gas tank. And you know this from your experience. Because I've talked with many of you who have experienced uh, the fallout of your sexual history and it is filled with guilt and it's filled with shame and it is filled with regret. Or if you're, if you're currently in a relationship that is dominated by messing around or sexual activity and you're getting in fights all the time, these are all the signs of you are going against the grain of your design. These are the signs that you are pouring in pancake syrup. The thing is malfunctioning. So why marriage, God? Why restrict it to marriage? Here's why, I think. Because sex communicates forever to another person. There, there is this mysterious permanence that gets communicated with, with sexual activity. Meaning, the emo- God has designed for your emotions and for your your sexuality to be intricately linked and they exponentially feed off of and intensify each other. So when your emotions get cranked up, that's what gives you an intense sexual desire for somebody. And then when you feed that sexual desire, that's what cranks up the emotions. And it's like they feed off of each other, exponentially intensifying on and on and on and on. This is why, for example, when you enter into a dating relationship and you're super amped up emotionally by that person, that's why you really want to kiss them. And when you do kiss them, that's what cranks up your feelings even more for them. Which, in turn, cranks up a desire to go even further physically. And round and round and round we go. And that right there, that whole cycle, is why God says this thing is designed to be done within the safety and the security of marriage. Because just think about it. You know deep down that when you give yourself to somebody and you are that naked with them, and that intimate with them, you know what it feels like, how empty it feels, knowing that there is no guarantee that they might not even respond to your text message the next day. You know how scary that feels, that there is no security whatsoever. You can't be any more intimate with another human being, and to know they might not even talk to me tomorrow. You don't have to have the Bible tell you that something is messed up with that. You know it from your experience. When you give yourself to somebody sexually, when you unite to somebody, and that unity doesn't flow out into the rest of your life, you know how off that is. Chuck Klosterman is this uh, brilliant, hilarious journalist, and he writes all of these extremely witty cultural commentaries. And in his book, Chuck Klosterman 4, He's reflecting on a time when he interviewed uh, Aerosmith's lead singer, Steven Tyler. And he has this great paragraph talking about this experience. And this is uh, a little longer than I typically like to read, but it's too good not to read it. So just buckle up and, and hear him out. Here's what he says. This guy's not a Christian, by the way. In 2002, I interviewed Aerosmith's Stephen Tyler about drugs and groupies. And he said something along the lines of, Having sex with the same woman a thousand times is way more interesting than having a thousand one-night stands with a thousand different women because those one-night stands are all the same. And he goes on and says, This is the kind of platitude rock stars say all the time. In fact, I'm forced to even paraphrase it from memory because the sentiment was way too cliched to include it in the article. Every aging rock god and then he says, except maybe Gene Simmons, eventually comes to this same conclusion. In fact, anyone, famous or not, who decides to get married is unknowingly agreeing with Steven Tyler. At some point, most people decide that sleeping with the same person improves the quality of their life, even though it eliminates romantic choice. We all unconsciously understand this. However, nobody consciously believes this is true until after the fact. And then here's what he says. This is the part I want you to to highlight. I want to highlight. If you ask any single man if he'd prefer to A, have sex with a thousand women one time each or B, have sex with one woman a thousand times, he will always take option A. Even though he knows this decision is virtually guaranteed to make him feel awkward and alone. Sex is created by good by God and it is a good thing. And God looks at you and says, look, you are not designed to feel awkward and alone. I want you to have an amazing sex life. Listen to me as your designer. Here's the way to have one. It's within the safety and the security of marriage. And then Paul goes on and says that there are two extremes that we have to guard against with this issue. And the first extreme that we have to guard against is idolatry, idolizing sex. Do you see it in verse 5? He says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater. Interesting, right? He looks at these three things, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, and says, Oh yeah, by the way, all that is idolatry. Now, idolatry is when you worship something other than God. When you look to something, anything, and say, this is where my meaning is, this is where my joy is, this is where I'm going to find life, it's in this thing, and it's not God. It's taking a good thing, which is sex or money or anything, and making it an ultimate thing. And Paul says, sexual immorality, impurity, this selfish ravenousness is all idolatry. It is worshiping something else besides God. And I think, I mean, we, for some of y'all, you don't have to think very hard to realize, oh yeah, that is me. I am addicted to porn. That is uh, idolatry that is strangling my life. Or it, it's some of you, for some of you, it's, it's being in a relationship that's just dominated by messing around and sexual activity. Or it's just obsessing over the thought of sex all the time. This is the idea of, of looking to something and saying, I worship this more than God. In fact, I would go so far to say as, if you're even messing around physically or having sex with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, that act alone is idolatry. Because what you're doing is saying, I know that God doesn't want me to do this, but my desire is more important than his. If you really trusted and worshipped and valued God's opinion, don't, don't you think that he would have a little bit more weight on the matter than, than you? But there's a, lot more, there's a subtler form that this takes, I think, at app. App. And uh, it's basically this. When the number one qualification for why you would uh, want to date somebody is if they are hot. When that is the number one qualification. Are they attractive? Will I be sexually fulfilled? That is the thing that matters most. And then maybe as an afterthought you think, I wonder if they're nice. I wonder if they have a good personality. (laughs) Maybe we'll get along together. You see what I'm saying? You see how, how... how this works? That's the first extreme that we have to guard against. And the, it's idolizing sex. And then Paul says the other extreme is trivializing sex. Do you see it in verse 4? Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. He's saying, look, sex is so good, it is so powerful, it is so potent. Don't even joke about it. It's making a mockery of this beautiful, awesome, good thing that God has done. And so my guess is for some of y'all, and for most of us, we, we just go back and forth between these two extremes. On the one hand, we, we idolize sex where we think about it all the time, we fantasize about it, we want it, we make it God. And yet, very quickly, we can easily trivialize sex where we joke about it and degrade it and speak about it in terms that just make it subhuman and, and dirty. In fact, you, you can probably be in your room, uh, idolizing sex in your head, walk out of your room and two seconds later be joking about it with your friends and trivializing sex. You just go back and forth and back and forth. But you have to see, when you trivialize sex, you, meet, you, you imply that sex is not good. But sex is good and it is created by God. Remember our definition? When you trivialize it, you imply that it is not good. When you idolize it, you imply that it is not created by God because you're implying that it is God. Does this make sense? This is what Paul is saying, that we've got to guard against these two extremes. And then in verse 5 and 6, Paul just flat out brings the hammer. And he looks at you very soberly and says that the sexually immoral will have no inheritance in the kingdom. You just have to let that sit for a second, because that is heavy. Now, I don't think that he is saying that if you have messed up sexually in the past, you've disqualified your chance to be saved. Or if you're even currently right now struggling sexually, that you've somehow forfeited your rights to the kingdom. That is not what he's saying. You are not saved by your sexual purity. You are saved by Jesus alone. But I think what he is saying is this. A perpetual, uncritical, unrepentant lifestyle of sexual self-indulgence is a very tangible test to see are you worshiping God or are you worshiping something else. Now we've got to move on and we'll talk about these issues more next week because the next section in Ephesians is all about sex and marriage again. So just consider this a shameless plug to come back and we'll talk more about sex and marriage next week. But I I wanted to uh, spend more time on this point. We won't spend as much time on the other points because, I mean, let's just, I mean, sex is pertinent to y'all. So we spend a little bit more time here than we will the rest. But that's the first thing. Paul looks at you and says, walk in love, not in the ways of self-indulgence. Here's the second thing. Walk in light. You see that in verse 8. He says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Now this next section starts playing with the metaphor of darkness and light. And darkness is basically the idea of ignorance and evil and error. And light is the idea of truth and of beauty and of goodness. And he's saying, Hey, walk in light. And then he says this in verse 9. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. That's a weird expression. Fruit of light. What does that mean? Well, even though it's weirdly worded, I think you understand the basic idea. I mean, if you, if you picture a, a field like uh, a, out at a farm or something and it's bathing in the sun all day long, that light is going to pro- begin to produce fruit on those uh, plants. You know, vegetables, fruits. You know what I'm talking about? And... Um, <laughs> that's what this is saying when it's bathing in the light it produces something and so in the same way when you bathe in God's light when you bathe in God's goodness and his beauty that does something in you and as verse 9 says it produces all that is good and right and true now I love spicy food and I will put Tabasco on just about anything and so this summer uh, I tried to grow my own jalapeno plants my, my, my own jalapeno peppers jalapenos. And um, what I did was I went and bought one of those potted plants, you know, where you can get to the farmer's market or whatever. It was just a a pot, a stem, and leaves. And my plan was, I'm going to take it out, put it on the back porch, let it sit in the sun, and I'm going to commit every single day I'm going to water that thing. And uh, I did a good job. Um, But what if I had, instead, taken that plant, put it on the back porch, and said, I'm just going to put it in this cardboard box instead, and put it in the box, sealed it up, And every now and then, a few times a month, took it out of the box and kind of held it up into the sun for a few minutes, and then put it back in the box and sealed it back up. (laughs) Of course, nothing's going to grow on that plant, right? But sadly, that's how many of y'all relate to God. Where you say and claim to be Christians, but really don't give him the time of day. And so, you rarely think about him, maybe every now and then you'll go to a Bible study or Every so often, even maybe read the Bible or pray if you get around to it. And you wonder why you, why nothing's happening in your spiritual life. This is saying you have to bathe in God's goodness, in his light. You have to actually set aside time to commune with him, to to, to just bathe yourself in his goodness and the grace that he has given you in the gospel and, and pray to him and rejoice in him and settle into the Bible and and. That's what begins to produce this stuff called spiritual fruit where you grow more gentle and you grow more joyful and you hate your sin more and you love Jesus more, all that kind of stuff. And maybe the reason why, none of that stuff is happening in you, maybe it's because you have not given God the time of day. Or if you have, you just give, give him a, you know, a couple minutes out of the month. He's saying walk in light. That's what this is saying. Walk in God's light. Here's the third aspect of imitating God. Walk in love, walk in light, and then walk in wisdom. Look at verse 15 with me. It says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Wisdom is very simply skill in the art of godly living. Skill in the art of godly living. This is saying, look, life is so complicated there aren't it's hard to just sort of give you rules and just go navigate it no no, wisdom is something a little bit squishier it it, it is uh life is too endlessly complex it's taking the bible and thinking biblically and acting biblically through all the complexities and nuances of life that's what it means to walk in wisdom and he talks about several different things but just for the sake of time i want to pull out two from his list and we'll talk about those two things here's the first thing Walk in wisdom as it relates to time management. You see it right there in verse 16. Make the best use of your time. Now, you don't realize it because I know that you're stressed out with school and with projects and activities, but you have a ton of free time. And I know you're going, Matt, I do not. You will not believe me until 10 years from now, and you'll look back and say, dude, I had a ton of free time in college. What did I do? You know how you spend your free time and then wonder why you get so stressed out? Because <laughs> you spend it on Facebook and video games and TV and hanging out in Crossroads. You know, I've talked to some of you where you're like, dude, I'm so stressed out. I got a million things to do. Ugh, I don't have any time. I was like, what were you doing last night? I was up till four watching a movie. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> this is saying be wise in the, the way that you relate to your time. So I know some of you are saying, man, does this mean... I can't hang out in Crossroads anymore? Are you saying Facebook is bad? Video games are bad things? No, I'm not saying that. Stop looking for these clear-cut rules. It's it's way more nuanced than this. But for some of you, it may mean, okay, I'm going to stop hanging out in Crossroads so much, or I'm going to get off of Facebook some. I mean, are you even thinking of the categories of wasting time? Is that even a thought? It may be wise for some of you to think about Studying. (laughs) It may be wise for some of you people to put down your books and say, I'm actually going to join society and hang out with some people today. I don't know. That's what it means to walk in wisdom. How do I think biblically about my life and about my time? And then here's the second thing that I want you to think about. Walk in in wisdom in the way that you relate to alcohol. Verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit. Now, for some of you who are like, okay, what does that verse really mean? I went and looked it up in the Greek. And here's what it means. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. (laughs) There are no hidden nuances. The Bible is clear. And what is the message? The message is stop getting drunk. That's the message. Now, I know some of you are going, okay, Matt, but, but what, is it, what does it mean to be drunk, technically? Does a buzz count? Uh, what is the line between over here and drunkenness? Now, those are good questions, honestly, and, and those, I think, are important questions, but they can be asked with an attitude that is, in my opinion, very dangerous. Because if you think about it, you're saying, okay, over here, God says this is sin and misery and death. How close can I get to that, Matt? <laughs> you see? Something is messed up with that. Something is messed up with that. And I know some of you are... Okay, what does drunkenness actually mean? And the, the whole semantic game, I think that we can just raise those questions to justify just wanting to drink and go crazy because it is slippery and there is a, there's, a, there's a sliding scale. I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what the line is for you. But you probably have an idea. And this is saying, hey, you can be enjoying alcohol legally in the way that alcohol enables you to enjoy it and say, okay, I'm here, and I'm going to blow right through this line and get over here. I don't care. This is saying, do not get drunk because that, that is debauchery. Again, that's a weird word. What does that mean? It means recklessness. You become reckless, reckless with your, with your mind, reckless with your thoughts, reckless with your actions, reckless with your words. Drunkenness is being out of control And it's saying, look, you are called to walk in wisdom and to imitate God. You cannot imitate God if you are out of control because God is not out of control. Furthermore, this this does not say, therefore, do not drink. Alcohol is one of those things just like sex. It is a good thing created by God. But this is, again, one of those things where God is saying, I created it. I am the designer of it, and I designed you to enjoy it. Don't pour pancake syrup in the gas tank on this issue. If you really want to flourish as a human being, do not get drunk. That's what this is saying. Walk in light, walk in love, walk in wisdom. Those are the three aspects of imitating God. But I know some of you are going, okay, how in the world am I supposed to do all this? In fact, some of you are going, okay, I know if I try all this, I'm just going to screw it up, and now this is just giving me eight more things to feel guilty about. So where do we get the ability from to walk this way and to imitate God? I want to look at this last thing um, very briefly, and we'll close out here. This whole passage is resting on one enormous assumption. Did you see it? It's right there in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. All of these commands, all of this stuff flows from the fact that you are God's loved children. It does not say, hey, do all of this stuff and you will become God's children. It says, do all this stuff because you are God's children. Do you see that connection? So, okay, this raises the question, how do we get to become God's children then? In a weird, almost kind of upside down way, the first thing that you have to do is to admit that before you were a child of God... You are a child of disobedience, a child of wrath. And that's what it says in verse 6. Look at it again. It says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Our disobedience warrants God's wrath. That's bad news. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came. And on the cross, he took God's wrath and said, I'm going to stand in your place. I will be the ultimate child of disobedience, so that when you are united to me by faith, you will become the child of God. I will be cast out of God's family so that you can be brought in, even though you're sexually messed up, sinful and broken and a mess, you will become a part of God's family. I know some of you are still going, okay, what? How does this all work? Let me try to explain it. Um, there is this great song by, the, by a band called The Welcome Wagon. It's a Christian, Christian band, and they have this song called Up on a Mountain. It's talking about Jesus walking the hill of Calvary up to the cross. And here's one of the lines. Up on the mountain, our Lord is afraid, carrying all the mistakes we have made. Jesus is walking up the hill of death, literally carrying all of your mistakes and mine. But he's not just carrying them, he's actually wrapped up in them. And he says, God, judge me instead of them. And he takes God's wrath so that you and me, who are trusting in Jesus, get no wrath and no judgment and nothing but love, even though we are a total mess. And the good news is is that Jesus looks at you now in the ways that you don't walk in love. And he says, you know what? I know that you've sexually messed up. I know you have. I know about the sexual guilt in your past. I know about the sexual struggles in your present. And I know about the sexual issues in your future. But you know what? I know about that shame and I know about that guilt. But I will not shame you because I have been shamed in your place. I will not treat you as guilty because I have stood in your place and said, treat me as guilty. And now Jesus looks at you and says, okay, now take my hand. And let's, let me lead you out of the miserable ways of self-indulgence. And let's walk the ways of love together. And then Jesus looks at you and says, you know what? Uh, I know that you have not been walking in the light, that you have been in darkness. And you do things in the dark that you don't want anybody to know about. And you've got secrets that are buried deep in the darkness. And he says, you know what? I know all about that. But I was cast into the ultimate darkness for you. So now that you can have the freedom to come out and walk in the light where there is no more reason to hide anymore. And he says, take me by the hand. I've dealt with your dark issues. And then Jesus looks thirdly at us and says, you know what? The ways that you do not walk in wisdom, the foolish decisions that you've made, the mistakes, the the stupid late night decisions that you're full of regret. He says, I know all about that. But I will not treat you as a fool. I will not treat you as your foolish decisions deserve because I have wrapped myself up in your stupid decisions, the way that you waste your time, the way that you are reckless with alcohol. And he says, I have been treated as the ultimate fool for you. I have been cast out of God's family so that you could be brought in. And he says, now take me by the hand and we will walk the ways of wisdom together. Do you see that? Only when you see the grace of the gospel, does your heart begin to melt and then out of gratitude you say, okay, I don't don't ever want to willfully engage in the very things that Jesus had to die for. He has dealt with my guilt and he has dealt with my shame and now he gives me a new life. Only the grace of the gospel can give you the freedom and the ability and the power to begin walking in the ways of love, to begin walking in the light and to begin walking in wisdom. And that is good news. Please pray with me. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the Lord Jesus, who has taken up our shame and who has taken up our guilt, who has taken up our mistakes, and who has dealt with them fully and finally. Father, that is good news for my ears. Because you know that uh, I, just like these uh, folks here, come to you uh, sexually messed up and... Uh, sinfully broken and prideful and filled with my own history of shame and regret. And so we look to you in faith, knowing that you have dealt with it and you have given us freedom and the ability to walk in the ways of love and light and wisdom. We pray that you would give us the faith to trust you and to walk uh, in light of that trust. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.